If you've tuned into WIHI today, you'll hear a podcast about a subject IHI knows a lot about, patient safety. If you're looking to step up your patient safety work, we're thrilled to invite you to this year's IHI Patient Safety Congress, where providers and patients gather to gain actionable strategies for improving quality and safety in healthcare. This year's Congress is committed to the advancement of patient safety with a renewed focus on technology, equity, and workforce safety. Featuring 30 expert-hosted breakout sessions across six learning tracks, you'll leave Congress with tools to make an impact back at your organization right away. Join us at the IHI Patient Safety Congress from May 15th to 17th in Houston. I'll be there in my IHI blue shirt, and so will plenty of the great guests you've heard on WIHI. For more information, visit IHI.org Congress. Now, here's WIHI. When a patient is harmed in the course of receiving medical treatment, there's no perfect remedy. But one thing that has been learned is that certain behaviors by health systems can definitely make the situation far worse, such as lack of communication and transparency, little accountability, no apology, and on it goes. And this doesn't just impact the patient or family members, it can impact staff too. To turn the tide, health systems across the U.S. and elsewhere are moving in the direction of greater transparency and proactive disclosure of adverse events to patients and families. And at least a few hundred hospitals in the U.S. have created what are called Communication and Resolution Programs, or CRPs. But a lot still needs to happen to make CRPs or something similar a consistent and reliable process. So that's what we're going to examine on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, We're here live, and then you can find us after the show on IHI.org, our website, and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So along the way of trying to do the right thing when it comes to patient harm, it's certainly useful to keep asking hard questions about the solutions that are in place so far. And that's what's so valuable about the two people joining us for this edition of WIHI. So I want to get right to those introductions. Joining us from the state of Washington, we have Tom Gallagher. He is a general internist and professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington, where he is also Associate Chair for Patient Care Quality, Safety, and Value. He is also executive director of the Collaborative for Accountability and Improvement, and that's an organization dedicated to advancing the spread of communication and resolution programs. A big welcome to you, Tom. Thanks, Madge. It's great to be here. Fabulous. And from Baltimore, we have Alan Cachelia. He is the Senior Vice President for Patient Safety and Quality at Johns Hopkins Medicine. He oversees patient safety, quality, and patient experience outcomes across the continuum of care. He is also the Director of the Armstrong Institute for Patient Safety and Quality, and that's focused on improving health care for patients around the world. Big welcome to you as well, Alan. Thank you so much, Madge. It's a privilege to be here. Wonderful. 
All right. We're going to start with Tom and uh, Tom Gallagher and Tom uh, and Alan and I and some others here at IHI have uh, been dutifully kind of looking at a lot of information and we have consolidated it to uh fit within the WIHI uh, format here, but rest assured we have a lot of resources, a lot of things that we really invite you right at the top to uh, commit yourself to looking into further. Tom, I have the impression that some not- with some notable exceptions, health systems still are moving kind of cautiously uh, with communication and resolution programs or something like that. Um, and even when uh, health systems say they have a disclosure and apology program, it turns out maybe not the full package or not every component is used reliably. So, uh, you're going to help us get at least our first picture of what is going on uh, in this space. Thanks a lot, Tom. Well, it, I think it makes sense to really start at the 30,000-foot level. And there's been really important progress uh, in the quality and safety of healthcare. But when we look overall, I think there's been much less progress uh, since To Air as Human was released than any of us had hoped. And my sense of the primary root cause for that lack of progress is that when something goes wrong in healthcare, when we harm patients, we're, we're not always transparent. We're not always learning. It's not that we don't want to be transparent. It's not that we don't want to learn. It's that we don't have the mechanisms in place to make sure that that's happening as reliably as it should. Uh, and on the next slide, uh, we see a couple uh, talking to each other. Uh, and the spouse is saying to her husband, um, I don't want your apology. I want you to be sorry. A lot of the early focus in the field uh, was on the issue of, well, when we've harmed patients through health care, what do we say? How do we have that conversation? Should we apologize and how? Um, and the title of this uh, WIHI session involves thinking through what's an apology worth. I think what we're learning in the field is by itself, uh, an apology is not worth a lot. What patients and families want is a much more robust response, and that's what a communication and resolution program involves. And on the next slide, we we lay out some of the different dimensions, the elements of a communication and resolution program, and compare them with the traditional response to harm and vets in healthcare. A high-functioning communication and resolution program involves several integrated elements. Early incident reporting by clinicians is key. Open, ongoing, transparent communication with patients and families is certainly critical. Event analysis and quality improvement in the CRP model focus on just culture, human factors, system solutions. For the subset of harm events where the harm was due to an error or system failure, and our best estimates right now is that's probably about 8 to 10% of harm events, so, so the minority. But for that minority of harm events where it's been an error or system failure that has caused the harm, 
we should be making proactive offers of financial compensation to the patient and family rather than requiring that they use the traditional malpractice system to access compensation. Care for the caregivers under the CRP model is integral uh, and is offered immediately. I don't know about for those of you on the phone, when I've been involved in serious harm events in my career, more often than not, I've put my head down and just moved on to the next patient. Uh, we know that that not only is good for is not good for the healthcare worker. I don't think you'd like to be that next patient that I've rounded on. And there's clear data that um, healthcare workers' unmet needs for distress after adverse events predisposes them to making more errors. And lastly, the CRP model involves the patient and family uh, throughout. So each element of the communication and resolution program is important, starting with early incident reporting and going all the way through patient and family engagement. It's such an exciting time in the field. I've been working in this area for about 20 years now, and we're seeing unprecedented uptake of communication and resolution programs. It's really important uh, that you think about these as principled, as comprehensive, and as systematic programs, both for preventing as well as responding to adverse events. And all three of those descriptors are important. Principled, we use it every single time. Comprehensive, starts with adverse event reporting, goes all the way through financial resolution, care for the caregiver, patient and family engagement. Systematic, the different elements are hardwired to work with one another. This uptake uh, of CRPs is really exciting but the biggest threat to the field is that many organizations are not implementing this model consistently. Either they're using it for some cases and not for others, or they use some elements of the CRP approach but not the whole model. Most often, choosing not to offer proactively financial compensation when that would be warranted. And this inconsistent implementation is a problem for all sorts of reasons. It means not only do patients and families are, are less likely to benefit from this approach, caregivers are less likely to benefit, but there are some skeptics who look at communication and resolution programs and think they're really just sophisticated claims management efforts. Um, and this cherry picking that we're seeing in the field gives fuel to those skeptics. So we really have to figure out how to overcome this inconsistent implementation by making these programs hardwired and by developing the performance improvement tools to track them effectively. Great. Thank you so much, Tom. Really, you just laid out some really, really important uh, issues and the landscape uh, right now. So really appreciate that. And we'll certainly be returning to those uh, themes uh, during the program today. All right, I want to turn to Alan now. Um, Alan, can you talk a little bit about some of the sticky wickets uh, on the implementation side of things, which you do have experience with? Um and what are we learning uh, so far from health systems when they're in the midst of this? Thanks a lot. Sure. Happy to do so. I think as Tom either mentioned earlier or alluded to, we have to realize that when we talk about CRPs, we're not just talking about simple conversations that occur. 
it turns out to do this right, there's a lot that has to happen in a very timely fashion, which means that after a patient's harmed, whether or not there's an error, we need to make sure that we have time, timely and meaningful communication. The investigation that follows has to be quick. You know, we can't take months to sort this out. And of course, once we figure out what happened, it's important to provide an explanation to the family and the patient, as well as emotional support, not just to the patients and the family members, but also to all the providers that were involved. And an apology, of course, if something, if there, there was an error made. Uh, there also then needs to, you then need to initiate discussions to figure out how you're gonna compensate or try to resolve the matter as well as possible if there was an error. And of course, there needs to be a lot of um, learning after an event occurs, meaning that we figure out what went wrong in the system and try to figure out how to make it right. So there's a lot of steps as you can see here. And a lot of this is historically not how healthcare, as Tom mentioned, has been uh, performed. So I, the best example I can do to describe kind of the sticky wickets that are out there is to just give you a simple case example. You can imagine an example where a patient is admitted to a medical service for some sort of medical problem and ends up going to surgery because the patient needs surgery. And after, this, after coming out of surgery, the patient is found to have had a really bad post-operative complication. So now you've got a whole host of providers who are involved, from the medical team, to the surgical team, to the anesthesia team, to the nurses. And we know that at this point, when something goes wrong, there needs to be clear communication with the family. But given all the providers involved, they may not all have a, the whole entire picture of what exactly went wrong. They actually may be reluctant to talk with the family because one, they may not have the facts. They may worry about throwing a colleague or another provider under the bus. And as a result, or they simply may be just afraid to talk with the family because they don't know what to say given how difficult the situation is. And what we've learned is that we know that the the families want to hear from us when things go wrong. So this is a classic example of where you need coordination and support from your organization to make sure that all the providers know that there will be communication, people who help guide a sensitive and thoughtful conversation with the family, and again, provide support to everybody involved. So this level of coordination and making sure an organization provides it has proven to be something that's uh, difficult to do because as Tom mentioned, a lot of organizations already feel like they have communication and resolution programs in place. And what we've learned through implementation, you actually need to put this type of structure in to make sure that these conversations occur in a timely basis. Uh, and of course, to build this type of infrastructure, you need leadership and support to believe in it. You need the right level of um, expertise in your organization, so the guidance that you're providing to your providers and the conversations that you're having with your family are the types that, that families like. You also need to understand that people are very afraid when things go, providers are very afraid. We need to make sure that we address their fears, that they won't be punished for doing the right thing. Because, because again, the focus needs to remain on communicating with the patients and the families and making sure they understand what happened and what we will do to make this right as much as possible going forward. Those tend to be some of the bigger sticky wickets there. And the other big one is the, the traditional culture we've had in America around uh, how we approach uh, error in courts and lawsuits. The general approach has been what we call deny and defend, which is that when something goes wrong, we have our courts here as the place to sort out the truth. And many systems have been built that way, that if there's a claim brought, 
we will say, no, let's, you know, we haven't aired, let's see what happens in court. When we talk about CRPs, the approach here is, let's figure out what happened. Let's come together to figure out what the resolution needs to be. So that requires getting the insurance companies on board with this more proactive approach as well. And I'd say those are probably the biggest challenges. Yes, and uh, thank you. And uh, I think um, all these ingredients uh, that you're, I'm looking at on the slide along with everyone else um, clearly are in part of a safety culture as well. And, and I know we'll talk about that a little bit more. I want to thank, thank you, Alan, uh, for just, and Tom, both setting us off. We're going to continue. And I just want to acknowledge as we go along, thank you very much, uh, all the comments. And I do see some questions already uh, in chat. Uh, somebody is asking, what do any listeners from Canada think about uh, financial compensation up front? Interesting, I thought. And maybe Tom and Alan may have even some info on that, uh, if that's being uh, looked at. So I want to continue now. Um, Alan, you just referred to it, and uh, it gets into the biggest, sometimes the biggest sticky wicket of them all, which is uh, lawsuits and risk. Uh, and what role risk management is playing in the organization, what kind of advice uh, we're, we're, we're definitely coming out of an era of, you know, um, being very, very fearful of uh, admitting errors and mistakes. And uh, it's, it's a journey and organizations are, are making it uh, along this path. But let's talk a little bit uh, about, uh, starting with you, Alan, what are we learning uh, about this whole lawsuit um, concern? Thanks. Sure. Happy to, happy to talk about that as well, too. Uh, so one thing I would point out is that lawsuits are definitely a concern, but I think we just also have to remember that it's just human nature. In general, we don't like to talk about mistakes because of fear to reputation or just having to deal with it. So I'd argue those are the two biggest barriers out there. And of course, liability is a big one that people worry about. And the general debate has always been is that if you admit your mistake, are you handing over an unreasonable blank check to a patient or a family? However, on the flip side, people argue, look, we just, you need to meet people's desire for sincerity and honesty. And in fact, that's what patients and families are looking for. Uh, there has been generally very limited data on the effect. And we've been lucky that as Tom mentioned, as these programs have been growing, uh, there have been more and more um, systems releasing their data. And I, I'm gonna review a few in a minute. But I'd also like to mention that in the context of being, of uh, people being worried about being sued, We've looked at general trends in malpractice claims against physicians. And if you look at claims that have been uh, settled on behalf of physicians in the U.S., in general, actually, what we've seen over the last 20 years across all specialties has been a general trend towards less claims being settled on behalf of physicians, suggesting that as much as we continue to worry about the liability risk, it might actually just be getting uh, lesser over time. But if I switch now to the liability impact, um, about 20 years ago, the Lexington VA had implemented what was called a disclosure and apology disclosure and offer program at that time, what we call CRP today. And what they found from early results is when they went from uh, going from a deny and defend approach to a communication and resolution program type approach, they found that their they went from being the top quartile among their, amongst their peers, among their peers in paying out down to the bottom quartile. So that led people to believe that doing the right thing could actually be a good risk management approach as well. 
we were lucky then in about 2001, the University of Michigan then implemented a program, a CRP program. And when we looked at their, uh, their results about 10 years later, what we saw was that they had, when you compare after, before to after, they actually saw a 36% drop in the claims that they were seeing, despite the fact that when they made a mistake, they were telling people it's our fault and sitting down with them and coming to resolution. So while so many people were concerned that admitting their mistakes would lead to a big jump in claims, what, the, what Michigan's data showed was that in fact, you can see a drop in claims. And in line with this drop in claims, they actually saw a drop in the amount of money that they were paying to their lawyers. So about a 60% drop in defense costs. And they actually saw a 60% drop in patient compensation costs. And again, this, has to, this drop occurred, again, despite the fact that they were telling people it's our mistake and offering them compensation. And the closer look at that data revealed that what was happening was that instead of paying large, larger verdicts for uh, larger settlement amounts for lawsuits, they were paying smaller amounts because they were settling them much more quickly, which was better for everybody involved. Okay. And as Tom mentioned, yeah. we've seen it. Yes, I'm sorry. No, ahead. no, please go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, and since then, there have been a number of other health systems that have released their data, and they've all seen a drop in their claims and compensation. I was part of a team in Massachusetts where we had implemented a communication and resolution program at uh, BIDMC and Bay State Medical Center and their community hospitals. Uh, a few AMCs in Massachusetts and community hospitals agreed to give us comparison data so that we could see what happened when we implemented at, one, at a few sites and compared to sites that didn't happen within the same state over the same period of time. And what we found was that the sites that did not implement CRPs really saw no changes in their liability trends with regard to claims, the total compensation being paid out and their defense costs. However, the hospitals that implemented CRPs saw a lower rate of new claims at community hospitals and at one of the academic centers and saw lower defense costs at both academic centers. So what we're seeing is the observational data comes out over and over again is that doing the right thing here, again, owning your mistakes, sitting down and proactively resolving with patients can resolve in better outcomes with regard to liability outcomes and at worst leaves them the same. And that's what we've been seeing with regard to liability data. Thank you. Uh, and I, there, that's a lot of different things to digest, but it does give people some uh, articles to uh, bring forward to others, uh, maybe skeptics and others who want to discuss the, the big issue of liability. Thank you so much, Alan. And again, thanks for all the thoughts in the chat. All right, back to you, Tom Gallagher. Uh, you have a, a number of things on your mind. We're going to throw up your slide about these five questions and talk a little bit also uh, about the the metrics uh, that you're developing. But first, we're going to go back to question one and two. When Mo, there she is. Okay, so let's look at some of these questions. Somebody already asked about a program uh, where there would be a measurement, and we know that's in the works. But let's put this in the context of five things that you think uh, everyone uh, should be thinking about. Thanks, Tom. Uh-oh, we didn't lose Tom, did we? We're gonna... All in. in uh, a group of colleagues and I had a, an article out in the fall looking at the state of the CRP field uh, and uh, identified five questions that we really think are critical moving forward, and I'll just touch on them. Happy to 
talk more about them during the chat. We've talked about the first one, how do we encourage greater adherence to core CRP practices? And the second related question, are CRP practices evidence-based and linked to patient safety? For our purposes, I think the most important takeaway from both of those questions is the last bullet. We should be using a quality improvement lens to help organizations figure out how are we doing with our CRP and what are some opportunities for improvement. And, and on the next slide, we have some information about the metrics uh, that we're developing. Uh, the collaborative together with Ariadne Labs in Boston uh, with Evan Benjamin in the lead is um, uh, developing a set of CRP metrics. I'm really excited about this work and am pleased that it's been supported actually by donations from three different patient advocates. Uh, we want the metrics to be able to support high-functioning CRPs uh, and not only to use the metrics for internal improvement in the short run, but down the road uh, for external accountability. We developed the metrics through looking at the literature, doing a lot of interviews, had an expert panel, and the measures exist really in three domains. One is kind of background. What is a CRP event? How many of the events that are eligible for a CRP are going through the process? What's the culture like? A second bucket that tries to outline the CRP steps and identify where they followed. And then a third bucket of outcomes, both quality and safety litigation and then the experience of the participants. Um, uh, I hope I see every one of you at, although we probably would need a bigger room, uh, at the IHI Patient Safety Congress on the 16th of May where Alan and Evan Benjamin and I will, will be talking about these metrics in detail. Um, we're at the stage now where we're starting to pilot test them. Um, after that, we'll be developing an implementation guide and then going through another round of extensive pilot testing. So we'd love to have as many of you start experimenting with these metrics as possible. And we can get a bigger room if, if needed. So Yeah. So the first, third, third and fourth question are on the next slide. Um, the third question is a particularly challenging one. Are offers of compensation made in CRP fair? And it's a very difficult question to answer because identifying what we mean by fair compensation is tricky. Um, and so we really encourage in the interim adherence to CRP procedures as a way of ensuring procedural fairness. There's a lot to do, as we talk about in question four, about aligning CRPs with participants' needs. Uh, there have been some studies on patient and family experience, but there needs to be much, much more. And then the last slide really highlights um, all the important work that needs to go on at the state and federal policy level to support CRPs. I did see in the chat um, question go flying by about uh, state apology laws um, and some work that's tried to identify the impact of those. I think the critical thing to know about state apology laws is that they can facilitate this work, but they're by no means uh, a requirement. We've seen effective CRPs uh, happen in, in a variety of state environments, but there is important policy work that could be done at the state and federal level to support these. Okay. Thank you. Good questions. And um, I want to underscore also the fact of the metrics being in the works. That's something I know everyone will be interested in. Uh, 
head to the Congress in uh, Houston if you can, uh, but certainly stay tuned and we'll do our best to stay close to this information and share it along with Alan and Tom and Evan Benjamin. All right. I think, Tom, I want to get this in here uh, as even as we're about to transition. Let's talk a little bit about uh, one of the big themes here, which is transparency. Uh, you very nicely penned a blog for IHI.org on transparency and even talking about a transparency uh, bundle, which was interesting. So uh, we'll throw up a couple slides here about that and uh, talk about why you pulled out the issue of transparency as something to really highlight. Well, it's exciting to see the work on communication and resolution programs really taking root. Um, but I think as a community, we'll make even faster progress if we can think about transparency more broadly. And transparency, when something has gone wrong, has multiple benefits. Listed here on the slide, we identify problems. It's an important part of promoting autonomy and respect for patients. There's some deterrent effect potentially. It's clearly what the patient and the public expects, um, as well as is aligned with regulatory requirements. One of the big shifts I think we need to make in the field is the recognition that transparency, while it has benefit on its own, we really should be thinking about it as an instrumental value. By, me, by that, I mean it serves a greater good. We're not trying to be open for its own sake. We're trying to be open because openness in, uh, advances quality, safety, patient-centeredness of care. So just being open is insufficient. Um, and as we look at the next slide, there are a variety of practices associated with being more open when something has gone wrong. It's not just sharing information with the patient and family. It's making it easier for patients and families to bring their concerns forward. In our research, we found uh, up to 40% of hospitalized patients think something has gone wrong in their care. Only 10% of them let us know. Well, why not? Because they worry that if they raise their hand, it may adversely affect their care. How do we make it easier for peers to speak up and share concerns they have about problems? How do we make it easier for organizations to talk with one another when something has gone wrong? What do we do about these care breakdowns called large-scale adverse events, which are care breakdowns that have affected tens, hundreds, sometimes even thousands of patients? We need to start thinking about these as a bundle which is what the next slide articulates, and really think through the benefits of considering these as linked practices and starting to think about what's the importance of the standard, what, what, what is the standard work associated with each of these elements, both getting ready to be transparent, but also when there's been an adverse event. And, and in the blog, I highlighted really five key steps to move forward, Bo both talking about and thinking about a transparency bundle, realizing that you just can't be open. That alone is insufficient. We see a lot of organizations doing better with sharing information and completely forgetting 
the emotion handling and empathic part of these conversations. When we have information sharing but no emotion handling, patients understand what happened, but they think nobody cares about it. This work really requires a lot of time and resources and attention, so organizations need to make an investment in doing this well. And then again, just coming back to the fact that, you know, and there's no place better situated than IHI to think about how do we take improvement practices that have been so helpful in other domains of healthcare delivery and start applying them to the process of being open um, and promoting quality and safety and patient experience when something has gone wrong. Thank you. All right. A lot of ideas out here, a lot of things uh, for people to gravitate to, uh, to start to put the pieces together. Uh, this with uh, the writing on transparency on IHI.org. I want to thank uh, Tom and Alan both for really laying out uh, a lot of really, really important work that's underway. I think what I'll do, we're going to now turn to some of your questions and comments uh, in the chat. We have a few more things I want to make sure that Tom and Alan get across, but let's uh, let's get to now some of your thoughts. It seems like everybody's got the hang of the chat, which is to send it to all participants so we'll all see it. Uh, Hallie has asked about whether there are any resources that help with the language for patient apology letters. Uh, and I imagine one could say also conversations uh, with patients about apology. Uh, either one of you uh, able to point to something like that? Is that something that's been worked on, uh, either Alan or Tom? Well, I can take a, a first pass at this. So there are a whole host of resources. We and others helped AHRQ develop what's called the Candor Toolkit. That's a great resource. I think reference was already made to it in the chat box. There are great resources associated with the collaborative that I lead as well as Macrame, which is a great uh, coalition around CRPs in the state of Massachusetts. When it comes to apology letters related to large-scale adverse events, there are also some um, great resources that I can point you to, including resources from the CDC. Um, I would say, though, that you know it's really important that these communications come across to patients and families as authentic and sincere. There's not necessarily a magic sort of thing to say. Um, uh, if letters come across, if they have the right words, but come across as legalistic or scripted, um, it turns out to really be counterproductive. So more helpful, I think, is taking some of these high-level principles and then putting it into words and language that feels natural and sincere to you. Thanks. Alan, anything you want to add to that? No, I think everything that Tom is saying is right. And I think the other thing that we've learned is letters are important, but they tend to be more kind of to follow up. You've got to be thinking about how you're having conversations with the family when things first occur, because that allows you to better gauge what they're concerned about, ask what their needs are, address what their concerns are. And it's not a one-time conversation. It's a series of conversations. So I, I'd argue the focus needs to be on how do you maintain uh, that, that longitudinal conversation with patients and families. Alan, let me also uh, uh, ask you this question that came in. Somebody wanted to know what drives the cherry picking that goes on, this notion that somehow 
we're different, as in our organization is different. Some of uh, what is being talked about here, for example, uh, there might be a remark, it, it won't work here. Uh, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think when people say it won't work here, that's, that's actually a very justifiable concern with regard to the liability piece because it, we've learned that in different states, in different cities even, you can have different, a different type of liability climate. We know that in urban environments, you know, lawsuits can be resolved for much larger amounts, so there can be a greater number of claims. So that when people very justifiably say, look, data from a, a VA or from a closed system in a non-urban environment may not apply here, uh, there's some truth. I can understand why people are concerned about that, and that's why it's actually very encouraging that we're seeing more systems implement in a diverse uh, number of settings to help answer that question. But more importantly, and I know, and we heard Tom say principled earlier, I think what many of us argue is it actually doesn't matter what the liability results are. We know that we have an ethical obligation to talk with our families, disclose our mistakes when things occur, and we should be managing what happens with regard to liability afterwards, but the liability should never serve as a reason not to talk with families. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, love your thoughts on that. Our audience here, somebody is asking about the fact that uh, uh, in response uh, to the uh, focus on transparency, that it still, I guess it's a big still, it does get used against um, health care, uh, that somebody is saying it's adversely discoverable in a legal proceeding, the transparency. Uh, Tom, your thoughts on that, or how would you respond? Well, I think when CRPs are working well, the information that you're sharing with patients and families is information that you would feel comfortable if you had to share it in a court of law. Um, It is important as you're thinking through the CRP process to really be careful about legal protections related to keeping quality improvement information confidential, peer review information confidential. I'm not an attorney, although Alan is, but this is why it's so important that the process of communicating with patients and families about problems is one that involves coaching and support from those in your institution who know about these elements um, and can make sure that the conversations are being held appropriately. Um, But there are ways to respect those important privileges and make sure patients and families understand the material and sort of summary level information that they need to, to to get a handle on what happened to them and not be waiving some of these important privileges. Um, but coaching and support from experts in your organization is key to walking that fine line. Thanks. Alan, I'm curious whether, uh, since a lot of healthcare organizations have risk management companies that they work with, uh, who advise and guide, and uh, are there changes taking place there? Um, are risk managers, uh, companies uh, on board with CRPs? I think that's from what we've seen. It's a, What we hear is that it's a mixed bag out there, but I think we're seeing the change occur, especially as we're all demanding more openness and transparency in the light of these events. I think we're seeing many more risk managers say, okay, let's figure out what happened here. Let's keep the family up to date. And 
let's you know come to resolution on this as, as it occurs. So we are seeing a shift, and again, away from that de deny and def defend approach to a communication and resolution approach. Mm -hmm. More work to be done, but I think that the change is happening. Okay. Um, Tom, has there been any research yet or uh, where might even this uh, get started if it has already, uh, if it hasn't happened, on what the experience is like for patients and families, uh, the people who are being reached out to uh, in a very proactive way? What do we know about that so far, either systematically, I guess, or anecdotally? Well, there's some basic research that's been conducted. It's been difficult research to do up until the last few years because there was a lot of concern um, about reaching out to patients and families after these events and not um, making them more litigious or upsetting them, and oftentimes there were risk management concerns that prevented that. But we and others have done several studies. They all have involved volunteer samples of patients and families trying to learn uh, about their experiences with communication and resolution program. And that preliminary data suggests that there's uh, lots and lots of room for, imp for improvement. Um, what we're trying to move towards as a field is uh, to, to really develop a much more population-based sample of patients who could be interviewed over time. Um, at least to my knowledge, all of the existing studies have been just cross-sectional, asking patients and families at one point in time. But I think we're at a place in the field now where we could assemble a longitudinal cohort and talk with patients and families shortly after an injury before they've made any decisions about what they want to do and let them tell us about their experiences and then chat with them over time and see how those experiences change. There are lots of misconceptions that we have in the field, and, and one of them gets back to even this name, Communication and Resolution Program. We, we work with lots of patient advocates, um, and many of them find the word resolution to be problematic. The misconception being we in healthcare think, well, we've made a financial offer of compensation that the patient ex accepted, this has been resolved and we're done. For patients and families, these events last for years and years and oftentimes never are, are, are in quotes, resolved. And so uh, research with patients and families, I think, is on the way, and it's going to have a profound effect on the way we think about these processes. Thanks. Um, okay, we have more questions. We're going to get to them. I want to... Um, also uh, go back to the reference uh, that Tom made about the Patient Safety Congress coming up uh, next month in Houston, Texas. Uh, go ahead, Mo. Tom's introduction was so great. I don't know if I'm going to be able to follow it <laughs> Add up. Add to it, yeah. But thanks, Madge. A lot of discussion today around safety, and we all know that the need for patient and provider safety does not stop after WIHI ends. That's why IHI is proud to invite everyone on the line to this year's IHI Patient Safety Congress. Congress takes place May 15th to 17th in Houston, Texas, and will feature 30 expert-led sessions across six learning tracks. And as Tom mentioned, May 16th, check out Tom and Alan. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Mo. Chris is asking a question about physician discipline. Um, and... I, I assume this has to do with discipline related to 
an adverse event or a medical error with a patient. Maybe Chris uh, Van could help us with that. Uh, but I think the issue that he's getting to there is that things that end up as kind of confidential human resource matters. Um, and which is a little bit different than uh, things that uh, might surface up through incident reporting and risk management within the organization. Do either of you have thoughts on that in terms of things that uh, can be or maybe sometimes are declared confidential in the human resources frame? Well, I don't. I'm happy to quickly talk about one aspect of this, Madge, and then um, it'd be great to have Alan weigh in. The discipline against physicians after an adverse event can come in, in a couple of ways. One is through the peer review process and um, uh, sanctions at the institutional level, but one of the others is action taken by a state medical board. Uh, and it varies from state to state, but in many states, if a payment is made on behalf of physicians, um, that gets reported to a state medical board, and that's really scary for physicians because, you know, the state medical board can take action against their license to practice medicine in a disciplinary way. Um, we in Washington State are fortunate in that we've developed a, a collaborative program with our board of medicine where if a CRP is used and a neutral review panel agrees that it was used effectively, it actually makes it less likely that our Board of Medicine will discipline that physician because the CRP, for cases of medical error only, not gross negligence or impairment or boundary violations, when a CRP works well, it actually accomplishes all of the things that a state board of medicine would want to see in terms of protecting the public, the openness, the early reporting, the shared learning. And we're hoping to expand that program um, to other states as well. So when, when most state medical boards learn about the CRP process, um, it really, I think, is intriguing to them about how it could um, uh, meet the needs of the public to even a, a better extent than traditional discipline would. Thanks, uh, Tom. Alan, anything you'd like to add to that? No, except that this is definitely a challenging area. I, I think the general guidance has been is that you don't necessarily, because you need to also protect employees when it comes to HR-related matters, often when it comes to discussing what you did in response to an event, uh, the discipline police doesn't have anything to, is not necessarily going to play into the care that's going to get delivered to the patient in the future or other patients in the future. So what we generally recommend is that people limit the conversation or the, the discussions to what they found that went wrong and how it will be fixed, right? The discipline has nothing to do with either one of those two. Um, so that's what we recommend that most people, that's what most people have found works is what I should say. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Eugenia, I want to thank you for your suggestion about um sort of begin to uh, develop some control charts um, in terms of medical errors and also when transparency began. 
uh, and uh, certain ways that this can all be tracked. We also learned on the chat, and I hope you will download the chat, all of you. It'll be on our website tomorrow in the archived edition of this program, but you can also get it when you get right off the program. Uh, Connecticut is doing uh, some work uh, looking, obviously, at liability and financial costs and also interested in all the other metrics. Um, I want to ask both uh, Tom and Alan to uh, one of the things we're always trying to do uh, at IHI and on WIHI is some initial steps you might take uh, after you've been part of a program like this. A lot of ideas are popping. I sometimes say to uh, our panelists, who should the folks who are on the program speak to next? Uh, Who should they turn to? Uh, Obviously, organizations here are in varying degrees involved uh, in communication and resolution, but there may well be organizations that don't have too much going on yet. Uh, Let me put uh, Tom on the spot first. Where would you start? Well, I think there are a number of things that someone can do. At your institution, um, it's good to really survey, well, what are the resources and programs that are available to help after an adverse event? Oftentimes, physicians, uh, nurses are surprised to learn that there actually are some resources that can help them in the moment when there's been a, a care problem. So I would do a systematic survey for physicians who are privately insured, who may not be employed, um, many liability insurance companies are moving in this area to offer those sorts of resources. So look and see what local resources there are so that if you're involved in an adverse event, you can reach out to them right away because we're finding that that just-in-time coaching makes a huge difference in terms of helping doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals respond appropriately to these events. The collaborative Macrame and other national resources um, um, are available to help organizations think through, I'd like to move in the direction of a communication and resolution program. What are some of the tools and resources to help with that? Um, Oftentimes that work starts at the level of engagement of the board or C-suite. We've found that um, at institutions where interested risk or quality or even physician leaders um, try to move this forward without engagement and support from the C-suite and board, the work goes much, much more slowly. So an an important part of this process is to figure out um, how could we bring this idea to the attention of our senior leaders um, and and share information with them and maybe bring in someone who's been involved in this work nationally to sort of provide some context and background and get that board and C-suite engagement. And then there is a large national community of organizations working on communication and resolution programs, trying to learn from one another, share best practices, and we would welcome folks to join that community. There, there are implementation challenges and struggles, and we'll make much faster progress if we all work together. How do you get connected to that community? 
Just to shoot me an email would be a great place to start. For those who are in Massachusetts, Macrame is a great opportunity. Okay. Um, there are also some resources through IHI, um, and so there are lots of opportunities to get sort of connected with that community that's working to move this work forward, and, and we welcome everyone's participation. Thank you, uh, Tom. Um, I want to. Uh, what we'll do is have Elena put the maybe the link to Macrame back up here. Uh, on the bio slides for both Tom and Alan, you'll notice that each has general generously uh, shared an email address, and they do that because you may well have some questions uh, to ask uh, each one uh, or both. So uh, this seems like a, a, a very good one. And if you if uh, we got a few more minutes to the program today, uh, if there's any uh, other links that you want to shoot our way. Uh, Tom or um, Alan, please uh, feel free. Um, a- whoops. Okay, who was who? Who took a big breath in? Who was that? <laughs> I was just going to say, Madge, just for the the person who chatted about Connecticut, we were just on the phone earlier this morning with folks from Connecticut about the metrics work, and there will be piloting of the metrics that's going on in Connecticut. Uh, and so uh, uh, your your uh, your request has already been granted. Okay. No, I I, I thank you for uh, referencing that and. Between the two of you and all the information being provided in the chat, it's 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 fabulous. Alan, I want to give you a chance to sort of weigh in on this idea of kind of next steps uh, that might be taken. Anything maybe you might add to Tom's remarks? Yeah, no, Tom covered it well. I think the two things that we should also remember is for those of us when we're involved in an event like this, when people look to us as to what we want to do, we, we should remember that we should advocate for this transparency and this open communication with patients and families right then and there. I think for those that are clinicians, it's an incredibly powerful thing and we don't realize how much we can drive the discussion in the right way when we do it. And for those of us that are administrators or other support personnel in clinics and hospitals, we should be asking for programs like this to be built. Uh, that is a good way to get leadership engaged is by advocating for those two pieces, advocating for this. Thanks, Alan. Uh, I want to put up this uh, a kind of final slide uh, from Tom, uh, representing a lot of this work and the way forward. And uh, at the same time, uh, I want to also acknowledge uh, Brigitte has asked a pretty interesting question, and uh, it has to do with really noting (laughs) and realizing when adverse events have taken place. Uh, In this comment, it's about uh, providers who may think things uh, are just part and parcel of the disease or somebody's condition, particularly people with a lot of complex issues. So that, of course, is uh, foundational. Uh, Somebody else in the chat also asked about uh, making sure more physicians and others do incident reporting. We're not going to, this isn't a program, unfortunately, about all that. But uh, anything, you know, obviously you you can peel back this onion, Tom, uh, and, you know, you've got to make sure that the fundamentals are in place. And that, it seems to me, might be part of a, a survey you might start in your organization. What's going on with reporting, right? Well, the, there are important tools that can help 
uh, and the person who chatted in the question about sort of known complications is on to something really important because one of the big shifts here, we used to think about disclosing serious medical errors, and this is really about a much broader response to harm events, which involves known complications. Uh, uh, it's a big frame shift to get people to, to think through. Um, this was just a slide kind of highlighting all of the work that's going on in various stages to help us move forward, and you'll be seeing more of this over time. Uh, we talked about the state and federal policies. We're working towards getting getting programs for folks who are interested in CRPs to learn more and become certified, much like you can become certified in patient safety or, or risk management, trying to get those best practices out there, the tools that we've talked about already around metrics. Um, and then we want to make sure that organizations that do a good job with CRP are recognized and rewarded and create those incentives. One of the incentives I already mentioned, trying to um, partner with state boards of medicine to um, make it less likely that providers will be disciplined. And then at the top, the most important thing is the learning community. And pieces of this are, are already in place about sharing best practices, driving innovation, starting to think about transparency as a bundle of activities, not just around what do we do with patients and families who have been harmed by errors, but this much broader set of practices. Uh, and then ultimately, really thinking about um, transparency as a, an innovation that serves quality safety and patient-centered care. As I mentioned at the outset, apology is important. By itself, it's not worth much. Uh, we need a much more systematic response the communication and resolution program is one example of that, that not only meets the needs of patients and families after care has gone wrong, but drives learning and improvement uh, across the health system and across the healthcare community. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tom Gallagher and Alan Kachalia, both uh, for working with me on uh, pulling all this information together for WIHI, no small feat. Uh, and thank you, wonderful audience, for all your participation, your ideas. You were clearly and are a very active group involved in this issue and helping one another. And that's why I want to remind everybody the chat is quite uh, valuable to you. You can download that when you get off the program. You'll be prompted to ask if you want it. You will also be prompted to ask if you'd like to download the slides. If you forget to do that, all these items are up on our website uh, tomorrow, IHI.org. You can look under uh, WIHI right off the homepage of our website and you'll find the archived material. We'll also be sending out an email to everyone who enrolled in the program. There were almost a thousand of you who enrolled uh, reminding you where you can uh, find all these elements as well as the podcast and the audio, uh, same audio on our website. So never fear. We're not going to leave you hanging if you're looking for anything. Um, any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org and uh, someone there will be happy to point you in the right direction. So again, big thank you to Tom, to Alan, to terrific audience, uh, the people who helped make WIHI possible, 
are John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Mo Berry, Val Weber, and Pat McTiernan. We also had help from Elena today, and I was just learning how to pronounce her last name, but I decided I wouldn't butcher it, but <laughs> it's in there in the chat. Uh, thank you, Elena. I also want to say a very special thank you today to John Gothier. He's been a crucial part of WIHI almost since its inception. John is moving on to do more great things, and we're really going to miss him here in the studio and at IHI, and we certainly wish him well. And it's my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good day, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to WIHI. As you may be aware, allowing the patient to be at the center of their own care is a priority here at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and we hope it's a priority at your organization, too. That's why we're proud to invite you to this year's IHI Patient Safety Congress in Houston. Join us from May 15th to 17th and learn more about steps and strategies to provide smarter, safer, equitable care for your patients. To find out more about the IHI Patient Safety Congress and this year's six learning tracks, visit IHI.org slash congress.